That's awesome. Well, I want to welcome everyone, uh, first of all, at our Mill Creek campus who is watching us my live stream, and also those of us here in our Sugarloaf campus. And if you are, just perchance, a Florida fan or a Clemson fan, this is a day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, let me tell you, I want to answer a question because people ask this sometimes, and it's a very legitimate question. And the question is, so what is it that makes our church different from other churches? What is it that kind of makes our church distinct from other churches? And, and, and maybe today you'll find out one of those things that we believe really does. And I'll, I'll give you an illustration. Wasn't too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, there was a young lady that visited our church. She was in her early 20s. And uh, she was from another church in our area. Well, after the service, she was walking through the lobby, and, and one of our ladies noticed her, and, and not recognizing her, walked over to her and asked if she was a guest. And she said that she was. She said, well, uh, did you enjoy the service? And she said, well, yes, I really did. She said, but I won't be back. And the lady said, well, was, uh, were our people not friendly? And she said, oh, no, your people were very friendly. She said, well, did you not enjoy the worship? She said, oh, no, she said, the worship was great. Matter of fact, she said, the, the worship is a lot like the, the church where I go. And she said, well, then why won't you ever come back? She said, well, it's your pastor. And she said, is our pastor? She said, yeah, I, I won't be back because of the pastor. And she said, well, um, did, did our pastor, you, you don't like him? He said, oh, no, I, I like him. She says, matter of fact, he's a very fine communicator. Very interesting. She said, but what's the problem? She said, well, he's too strong for me. I, I just can't handle that kind of preaching. And then she made this statement. She said, the message that he preached today would never be preached in my church. Now, I preached that day on, on a very controversial topic. I admit that. But we dealt with it biblically, we dealt with it compassionately, but we did deal with it firmly. And kind of like that message then, we're going to hear a message today that you don't hear very much in churches anymore. Matter of fact, I'm going to talk about a topic this morning that not only do we not hear churches talk about, a lot of churches won't even touch this topic. In fact, there are a lot of churches, I'm convinced, that kind of have an unwritten rule that say, we're not going to deal with this topic at all. Matter of fact, I'm going to talk about a word today that's very rarely heard in churches anymore. I listen to a lot of communicators, what we used to call preachers, now it's communicators. I listen to a lot of communicators, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not throwing down on them or anything like that, but quite frankly, I listen to a lot of communicators, and I never hear communicators ever use this word. It's a topic that nobody hardly ever touches. Now, that doesn't bother me because I'm in very good company because the very first word that Jesus ever used in the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached was this, was this word. And this is such an important word that unless you do what this word commands you to do, Jesus said, you can't even have a relationship with God. And unless you continuously do what this word talks about, you really can't maintain fellowship with God. Now, that word is repent. I want you to say that with me. Repent. Let's say it again. Repent. When's the last time you used that word? 
When's the last time you heard that word? It's not a word that's used much anymore. It's not a word that's, that, that, that is heard much anymore. We've kind of put it on the back shelf and kind of covered it up with, you know, with, with, with curtains. Because the reason we're dealing, you may say, well, why are you even talking about repentance? It's because of the series that we're in that we started last week that we're calling fault. And let me just go back and give you a little review. We told you that earthquakes are caused by geological faults. And if you don't know what a fault is, a fault is when two rocks kind of shift or two layers of this earth's surface kind of shift, and it causes a fault. As a matter of fact, I was, it was kind of interesting. I stayed several weeks ahead in my sermon preparation, and while I was writing this sermon out, the very day I was writing this sermon out, you may remember they had two massive earthquakes, one in San Francisco, one in Peru. It destroyed homes. It destroyed roads. It left people homeless. They were without electricity. And I told you that earthquakes are caused when, when the earth's surface kind of shifts. You've got these layers of rock, and they shift. They shift vertically, and they shift horizontally. When those faults occur, they cause tremors that cause earthquakes. Well, I said, you know, life is just like that. Because every one of us have what we call faults. We've got these personal faults. And they cause these massive earthquakes in relationships. Now, last week I told you that the Bible calls those faults a certain name. What does the Bible call them? Call them. Sins. They call them sins. That, that's what the Bible refers to as faults. And whenever relationships are ruptured and relationships get ruptured, and whenever friendships get fractured, and friendships do get fractured, I told you last week, there always is someone at fault. And one of two things usually is true. If there's a rupture in our relationship, either it's my fault, not yours, or it's your fault, not mine. There's no such thing as a no-fault rupture. Whenever two people get separated, whenever two people start going down opposite paths because of a conflict that takes place, somebody's always at fault. Either it's my fault, not yours, or it's your fault, not mine. So what we're going to do in this series of messages is we're going to deal with both of those situations. Right now, we're dealing with a situation that somebody's been hurt in a relationship, and you're the one that caused the hurt. You're the one that caused the separation. It was your fault, not theirs, yours, or it's my fault, not yours. And so we're talking about how do you handle that situation? How do you put a relationship back together that you broke, that you separated, all right? After we do that, we're going to flip, we're going to flip it. And we're going to deal with that situation that, quite frankly, is sometimes a lot harder. And that is, how do you repair a relationship when you're not the one that broke it? You're not the one that caused the problem. In other words, it wasn't your fault, it was their fault. Or it's not my fault, it's your fault. How do you deal with a situation when you're not the one that offended someone, you're the one that got offended by someone. And sometimes that's a lot harder because when we're the one that offended and we're the one that gets hurt, that hurt and that anger and that bitterness and that pride says, I ain't the one that broke it. I ain't going to be the one that fixes it. And sometimes that is a lot harder. But right now we're dealing with that situation where it's our fault. We're the one that sinned. We're the one that broke the, the, the relationship. We're the one that ruptured the relationship. And if you remember going back to last week, we said that when we're the one that did it, we've got to start at the epicenter of what caused 
the rupture. And if you missed last week, let me just remind you that when, you, uh, when we experience earthquakes, there's always an epicenter to an earthquake. And if you don't know what the epicenter is, the epicenter is always where an earthquake starts. It may not be where it ends, but it's where it starts. I told you, remember last week, that the earthquake that we had here in Atlanta back in February actually started over in South Carolina, and that can happen. So the epicenter is wherever a, a, a fault begins to separate. It's where an earthquake first begins. Now, I told you last week that every time we let our faults get out from, away from us, every time we sin, that the first relationship that's ruptured is always our relationship with God, because every sin is always first against God. So we said, if you want to begin to repair the relationship that you've ruptured, even if, even if you sin against someone else, that you have to begin with God. And we said the first step that you have to take, we talked about confession. We said that's the first thing you've got to do. When you're the one that was at fault, you're the one that sinned, you're the one that messed up, you're the one that fouled up, you're the one that broke it, you know it, you've got to own it. We said, okay, you've got to fess up to your mess up. And the first person you've got to go to, the first being you've got to go to is God. Because every sin is first against God. So I said last week, whenever you do wrong, whenever there's sin in your life, you first go to God and you say, Lord, I've messed up. I've sinned. I want to call it what you call it. It is a sin. And then once you get his forgiveness, if you've done wrong to someone else, we said, you've got to go to that person and you've got to confess and you've got to ask for forgiveness. Now, the good news is we found out last week, God has a perfect record. Every time we confess, God forgives. He doesn't forgive 99% of the time because guess what? If God forgave 99.99% .99 of the time, we'd all be in big trouble, right? But God says, every time you confess, I forgive. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we said last week, every time we sincerely confess, God surely forgives every time. That's the good news. Here's the problem. Too often we stop at step one. We, we'll, we'll, we'll hurt somebody's feelings. We'll offend someone. We'll do someone wrong. We're the ones that break the relationship. And here's what we'll do. We'll go to God and we'll confess and we'll say, God, I am so sorry I did that. And we'll think, okay, I'm good to go. All is well. Well, it's not because that's only the first step. Or sometimes we think, we'll just kind of go to someone and say, okay, look, I'm the one that fouled up. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And we think, okay, all is well. But we're going to learn today there's a second step you have to take. And I call this second step the seismic shift. Now, you know what a seismic shift is? A seismic, a seismic shift is when a fault is so bad when there's such a massive shift in the layers of the earth, it doesn't just cause an earthquake, it causes a massive earthquake. Well, we're going to learn today that there is a seismic shift that has to take place with us and our sin if we're going to truly, truly maintain our fellowship with God and if we're going to be right with God and right with others. And that seismic shift is found in the word repentance. Now, I'm going to go very deep today because of two reasons. Number one, we don't talk about repentance very much anymore. We don't hear about repentance much anymore. And number two, we don't really understand what repentance is. Now, before I get started, let me tell you again why we're going to talk about this. 
If you're a believer, you, you know this. If you don't, let me educate you. Our church has been given a job. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. We don't have to wonder why we even, even have a church. Jesus gave the church a job. We call that job the Great Commission. You don't need to remember that, but all, all you need to know is this. When Jesus left this planet, he gave the church a job, and he said, this is your job. I want you to go to everybody that doesn't know me and tell them about me. I want you to go to everybody that doesn't have a relationship with me. I want you to tell them that they can have a relationship with me and how they can have that relationship. That Great Commission simply is we're to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody we can, both here and around the world. Now, he told us what to do, but what a lot of us don't realize is he not only told us what we're to do, we're to share the message of the gospel. He told us exactly what we're supposed to say. Now, a lot of you didn't know this. He told us exactly the content that we're to preach to people that do not have a relationship with Jesus. And a matter of fact, Luke did us a favor. Unlike any of the other gospel writers, Luke tells us exactly the content of the message that Jesus has commanded us to preach. It's found in Luke 24, verse 47. Here's what Jesus said. And that, what's that word? Would you say it real loud? Repentance. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you, you can go to any church in America today that's halfway preaching the Bible. You're going to hear something said every week. You're going to hear the preacher talk about or the communicator talk about forgiveness you can be forgiven. You come to Jesus. You can be forgiven. Jesus is the Savior. You can be forgiven. Jesus died for your sins. And if you'll ask him to forgive you, he will forgive you. But in the vast majority of those churches, you'll never hear that pastor or that communicator say, and you must repent. It's not just enough to ask for, for, for forgiveness. You must repent. So let me just make this very plain. And there may be some preachers that will be listening to this sometime. If you're not preaching repentance, you're not preaching what Jesus preached. And if you're not preaching repentance, you're not even preaching what Jesus told you to preach. So all I'm doing today, and let me just say this. There's some of you saying, oh, no, man. I, why, why, I don't, don't want to go to that kind of church. I don't want to hear that kind. I mean, this repent. You know, we think about repenting. You think about a guy with his two sandwich boards, you know, walking up and down the street with a beard and dirty hair and a big black Bible saying, repent, turn or burn. You know, and you say, man, I, I don't want I just don't want that. And, 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 and that's not what we're going to do today. But what I am telling you is this. One day I've got to give an account to God for what I preach. And if I don't preach what Jesus told me to preach, then I'm going to have to say before Jesus, he's going to say to me, I just got a question. I told you to re preach repentance. Why didn't you do it? So today, we're going to study a situation right out of the Bible that illustrates exactly what repentance is and exactly what repentance does. So if you brought a copy of God's Word or a tablet or an iPad or an iPhone, whatever it is that you use, I want you to turn to the New Testament. And I want you to turn to a book called 2 Corinthians, okay? You say, no clue where that is, right after 1 Corinthians, all right? So I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. By the way, if you didn't bring anything, you don't have any way to look up anything on the Bible, that's fine. We'll throw the verses up on the screen. But let me just kind of give you the background of what's going on in this story. 
Paul had founded this church in a place called Corinth. By the way, I'm going to Greece next year. We'd love to have a lot of you go to Greece with us. It's a great trip. One of the places we go to is a city called Corinth. We go to the ancient city of Corinth. Paul founded a church in, Cor in Corinth. And the problem was there was a church member in this church that had committed a very grievous, wicked sin. Now, Paul had instructed the church in the first letter to deal with this sin. He said, you got sin in the body, you got to deal with it. You've got a cancer in the body, you got to take care of it. The problem was the church didn't do it. They put their head in their sand, they just ignored it, they hoped it would go away, and they didn't do anything about it. So Paul wrote a letter to this church rebuking them and telling them, if you've got sin in the church and you don't deal with that sin, you just became a part of the sin. Now you're in sin. So he says, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, you've got to deal with this sin. And he tells them exactly how to handle it. Then later on to follow up, he sends a protege by the name of Titus to follow up to make sure that they've done exactly what he requested. Now what you're going to see this morning is this church serves as a model for how sin is to be dealt with in the right way if we're going to deal with our faults correctly. Now here's, I want you to hear. Everybody in this room has faults, okay? You've got faults, I've got faults, we've all got faults. The question is, do you want to deal with your faults and do you want to deal with them correctly? Because if you deal with a fault in an incorrect way, it's just, it's, it's really, in a way it's kind of worse than not dealing with it at all. Because there's some of you that have never dealt with your faults correctly, and that's why you don't understand, why can't I get victory over this fault? Why can't I finally conquer this fault? Why is it that my tail's still wagging my dog? Because you've never taken this step called repentance. So this is what I want you to take out the, the door with you this morning. Here's our takeaway, listen. When we turn to God, we turn from sin. When we turn to God, we turn from sin. There's some of you in this room, there's some of you at Mill Creek, there's some of you watching right now, by, by maybe on a computer with our live stream, and you're saying, you know, I, I, I thought I'd turn to God, I don't know really whether I have or not. It's real simple. If you turn to God, you turn from sin. You cannot turn to God and hold on to your sin at the same time. See, there's some of you here, and you're listening to me right now, and you think you've dealt with your sin. You say, well, you know, here's my problem. I have confessed my, my sin to God. I've confessed my, my problem to God, or whatever it is you're dealing with. But you know what my problem is? Y'all bet I know what it is. You keep repeating it, don't you? Yeah. I keep doing the same thing over and 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 over. And I keep confessing. And you know what? I keep feeling guilty and I keep feeling bad about it. And I can't seem to get victory over it. I'll tell you what your problem is. You're confessing, but you're not repenting. And confession is just step one. Repentance is step two. And I promise you, there's some of you listening to me right now, you're living a totally defeated life. And the reason is you've never taken this second step. You have never experienced this seismic shift that is the only real remedy for your fault. Let me, let me give you an illustration. If you're going down a street and you decide you want to make a left-hand turn or a right-hand turn. Makes no difference to me, okay? But let's just say you're going down the street. You decide you're going to make a left-hand turn. Now, two things just happened. You not only turned onto one street, you turned off the other street. It's impossible to turn onto this street and still stay on this street. 
And that's where a lot of us get spiritually schizophrenic because we try to turn off on one street and stay on the same street at the same time. You can't do that. When you turn to God, you turn from sin. When you turn onto one street, you just turned off another one. You cannot stay on the same street. And likewise, when we're at fault, it is our fault. We're the ones that have sinned. And you're sitting there saying, hey, you're going to help me today. I not only am sorry for what I've been doing, would you please help me to know today how to get victory over what I've been doing? Absolutely, by the following steps. You ready? Here we go. Number one, we must truly realize our sin. That's step one. We must truly realize our sin. Now, let me just say this. One of the most loving things we can ever do for other people who are living in sin. I'm talking about people who are believers. One of the most loving things we can do for other people who have committed a sin and they've done something wrong is when it's appropriate, go to them, let them know it, tell them they're doing wrong, confront them with their sin, and then say, I'm not just here to blow a whistle on you. I'm here to help you deal with it. That's exactly what Paul had done with the church. Paul said to the church at Corinth, look, I'm your spiritual father. I led many of you to Christ. You first heard the gospel when I came to preach. I'm the one that organized you into a church. I'm the one that founded this body. And you're breaking my heart because there's sin in your church. There's this church member that's living in this grievous sin, and you're not dealing with it, and you become a part of it. So he reads them a letter to rebuke them and exhort them to do the right thing. Now, here's what had happened. Paul hadn't heard anything. He didn't know what they'd done, what he had asked them to do or not. And he was kind of afraid that the church would just, had just gotten mad at him and had just written him off. He was afraid that he had burned some bridges, which, by the way, is why a lot of us won't confront people when we know that we ought to, because we're afraid that we'll hurt their feelings. We're afraid, well, if I do this, I might lose their friendship. And he was afraid that rather than receive his instruction and act on it, that they had rejected it and then turned their back on him. So he says, Titus, I want you to go. I can't go. I want you to go. I want you just to find out what the spiritual temperature is of the church. And I want you to come back and tell me exactly what the lay of the land is. Well, he goes and he finds out and he sends this wonderful report back to Paul. And Paul, you know, is so excited that the church did what he asked them to do. But then he says something very, very strange to this church. We pick it up in verse 8. Paul said, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's the letter that Paul had written him to saying, hey, get your spiritual act together. You can't let sin just hang around in the church. You've got to deal with cancer that's in the body. You've got a man that's sinning. I need you to deal with it. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. They said, I, I, if I broke your heart, I really doesn't bother me. I mean, you know, too bad, so sad, okay? I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. That's kind of weird. Paul says, you know, when I wrote you this letter, it made me so sad, but not really. It kind of broke my heart, but it didn't stay broke long. I mean, as a matter of fact, he, you know, he says, you know, when you receive this letter, you could have had a lot of emotions when you dealt, when you got this letter. You could have had anger. Who are you to tell us what to do? You, you could have had arrogance. You could have said, hey, we're no longer under your authority. Or you could have just had apathy. Look, we just don't want to deal with this. We really don't care. But he said, you know what really has just made me, made me so happy? Listen to this. You know what made me so happy is that you got so sad. 
You know what encouraged my heart is that your heart was broken. You were full of grief and full of sorrow. And Paul said, that is so good. That's so wonderful. You have made my day knowing you're bawling your eyes out. That's kind of weird. You say, why would he say that? Listen, grief and sorrow are always signs of a broken heart. And whenever we sin, every time we sin, we ought to have a broken heart. You know why why we ought to have a broken heart? Because every time we sin, every time we do wrong, every time we disobey God, it doesn't matter who else you hurt. Let's just put them aside for a minute. Every time we sin, we break God's heart. Every time we sin, we break God's heart. And though it hurt Paul to hurt them, it actually made Paul glad that they were hurt. And here's why. He said, you know what? You know what? You know why I'm so happy that you were grieved? You know why I'm so happy that you were sorrowful? You know why I'm so happy that you were heartbroken? Because you just told me you realized your sin. You know there's such a thing as sin. You're willing to call sin what it is. You're willing to confess it for what it is. And that makes me glad. Let me tell you why this is such such an important concept. Listen carefully. We're seeing this right now in our culture. When the concept of sin is diminished, the practice of sin is increased. When the practice of sin is increased... And the the concept of sin is diminished. You know what disappears? Guilt. You know what disappears? Shame. Why, Why do you think we're living in a culture where shame and guilt over sin have become basically a thing of the past? Why do you think that's true? Someone said that sin that used to sneak down the back alley now struts up the main street. Why is that? Why is that true? I'll tell you why. Real simply. I told you this last week. Sin is no longer a sin. Sin is a mistake. Sin is a faulty judgment. Sin is a miscalculation. You may have seen on the news this week, and I'm not trying to throw rocks at the guy, but there was a major league baseball manager that resigned. All of a sudden, he said he resigned for personal reasons. I'm watching his press conference Thursday. He calls a press conference. He gets up, and he says, look, I'm not going to go into detail. Let me just tell you why I resigned. Here's what he said. He said, I betrayed the trust of my wife, okay? I betrayed the trust of my wife. Now, everybody kind of knew what he was saying, right? Been married, I think, 40-something years. I betrayed the trust of my wife. Can you guess what the next words were out of his mouth? Anybody just want to guess? I made a mistake. I wanted to throw my shoe at the TV. I said, dude, you didn't make a mistake. You broke a commandment. You sin. We don't do that anymore. We fail to realize sin and call it sin. And you know what happens? When you fail to call sin, sin, and you fail to realize what sin is, you also then lose the power to truly ask for forgiveness of sin. And I was watching this guy, and I do feel for him, and I hurt for him, and I prayed for him while I was watching him. But the thought hit me, we don't even know how to apologize anymore. We don't even know how to really get forgiveness anymore. And that really shouldn't surprise anyone because until we realize our sin, we will never take the proper steps to get forgiveness for sin and have our fellowship with God completely and totally restored. And let me just say a word to some of you out there right now. I know I'm touching a nerve with some of you. I know there's some of you right now and you're listening to me, you're going, I wish I had gotten sick today. I wish I had just not come today. I wish I'd stayed home and watched Oprah today. Okay, I get that. 
But let me just say this to you. There's some of you out there listening right now, and you're struggling with a certain stronghold in your life. And until you finally realize what that stronghold is, call that stronghold what it is, and confess it as a stronghold and a sin, you will never get on the road to redemption. So the first thing you've got to do, you've got to truly realize your sin. All right, step one. Step two, we must sincerely regret our sin. Not just realize your sin, we must truly regret our sin. And anybody with any conscience at all will always regret when we do something wrong, especially when we hurt someone else. But now watch this. Paul says, you know, it's a fine thing if you sin and you're sorry about it. But then he says something that's really kind of shocking. He says there are two different kinds of sorrow over sin. There's two different ways you can be sorry for your sin. He said one will put you on the freeway of forgiveness. One will put you on a dead end to death. So look what he says beginning in verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. He said, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a sadistic person. I'm not, I wasn't happy because you were sad, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt, and let me just hold this on the screen for a minute. You felt a godly grief. Now watch this. Paul is telling us up front, you don't realize this, but there's two ways you can be sorry for your sin. One's a good way. One's a bad way. There's two kinds of sorrow you can have when you're the one at fault. You're the one that blew it. You're the one that messed up. One is a good sorrow. One is not. All right, now we go. So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, there's that phrase again, godly grief produces a, what's that word? Repentance. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, again, you don't hear this much anymore. You don't hear anybody talk about this anymore. There's a huge difference, Paul said, between worldly grief and godly grief, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Now, you, you probably have experienced both kinds. In fact, let me just ask you, let, let me just ask you, let's just all get honest. Let's, let's, I mean, no need to lie because God knows the truth, right? Have you ever, ever, I mean, to be honest, have you ever been caught doing something you should not have been doing? Okay, you got caught for doing something you should not have been doing. But you weren't sorry for what you were doing. You were sorry because you got caught. Now, come on now, hold your hand up. Don't you sit there and lie to me. Every hand better get up. I'm going to call you out on this up here right now and have you give a testimony, okay? Look, you're exactly right. We've all, every one of us, I told you before, I got, the only time I ever cheated, I was such a poor, I never cheated, but one time, and the one time I cheated, I got caught. One time I cheated one time in 12 years of high school, and I got caught. You know what? Looking back on it, I wasn't sorry that I was cheating. At the time, I was sorry I got caught. You say, well, how do you know if you're not sorry the right way? How do you know if you're sorry in a wrong way? Well, well, there are some surefire marks that if you're sorry in the wrong way, if your sorrow is worldly and not godly, there are some surefire marks that, 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 that that's what's wrong with you. Let me get, I'll just give you two or three of them. Worldly sorrow leads to denial. If you're sorry in the wrong way, you'll say something like this. You'll say, well, everybody does it. Or... Um, Oh, here's one. That really wasn't me. Hey, secret. Yes, it was. Okay. But you'll say, well, that really wasn't 
me. Or, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. Or, well, I just don't think what I did's that bad. Worldly sorrow leads to denial. Now watch this. Worldly sorrow leads to despair. Because worldly sorrow looks at the consequences of having to suffer for what we've done. When we do something wrong, if you're sorry in the wrong way, you're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry because of the consequences you have to pay for what you did. So for example, we'll say things like this, oh no, I'm going to lose my job. Or oh no, I'm going to lose my marriage. Oh no, I'm going to lose my kids. Oh no. I'm going to jail. See, when you're sorry in the wrong way, here's a surefire mark you can know it's the wrong sorrow. You're sorry for what your sin's done to you. You're sorry for what you are going to have to suffer for what you have done. And then Paul said, what's even worse is worldly sorrow leads to death. Because when we sin, we either deny it, we excuse it, we explain it, or we justify it. And you know what that, what, what that does to you when you start doing that? It kills your conscience, it kills your soul, and it blocks you from the forgiveness that you've got to have to have fellowship with God. So I got to thinking about how can I really explain to my people what worldly sorrow really is? And I'll tell you, I thought about this perfect phrase, okay? Have you ever heard the phrase, crocodile tears? You ever heard that phrase? Well, I went up, I, you, know, you know me, I'm always curious. And so I wondered where did that phrase come from? Well, let me tell you something. I found out something very, very interesting. Did you know that crocodiles do shed crocodile tears? I, I'm not making this, it's true. Now, do you know why we call them crocodile tears? Because tears are normally only noticeable in a crocodile if that crocodile's been out of the water for a long time. Here's what happens. If a crocodile gets out of the water and stays out of the water any length of time, his eyes begin to dry out. When his eyes begin to dry out, his body begins to secrete this fluid that will clean his eyes out and keep them lubricated. I actually saw pictures. I started putting one up on the screen. I just don't like gators. But... Um, <laughs> You, you can actually, you can, add, well, that's, that's a mark you're saved. But here's the point. You, you, you can actually see a tear in a crocodile's eye. Now, it's not that he's brokenhearted. He's just dried out. His eyes need to be lubricated. Worldly sorrow, Paul said, that's crocodile tears. And people are expert at crying crocodile tears. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. People can truly feel sorry for their sin in a very worldly way. They'll look like they're sorry. They'll talk like they're sorry. They'll act like they're sorry. But Paul says it doesn't lead to true repentance. It leads to death. And I thought, here's a good, I gave you one example. Let me give you a biblical example. The best biblical example of someone I'm talking about is Judas. You remember the story of Judas? He, for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus. Well, after he betrays Jesus, he's sorry. And I have no doubt in my mind, I, I, no doubt at all, Judas was genuinely remorseful, truly remorseful. His heart was broken over what he had done. Well, where did that sorrow get him? He hung himself. Instead of going to the one that hung on a cross, he hung himself on a tree. This is the way his life ended. You remember? He goes to the chief priest. He goes to the elders. He's feeling so guilty. He's really sorry for what he's done. Here's what we read in Matthew 24. 
He says, I have sinned. All right, he realizes his sin. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Paul said, you know, there's this worldly sorrow, but it leads to death. That's what it did for him. Now, I want you to imagine, I went back and just kind of did something I thought was kind of cool. What if you could go back and rewrite those verses, and what if those verses had read this way? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I realize my sin. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he repented, and he asked for forgiveness. You think his story would have been different? You think he might have had a different ending to his life? See, here, here's what I want you to understand. I want you, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to listen to this. When you sin, when you mess up, when you foul up, when it's your fault, God doesn't want you feeling sorry for yourself. God wants you feeling sorry for your sin. Judas felt sorry for himself. He really didn't feel sorry for his sin. See, here's our problem. We, te we tend to look at sin for what sin does to us. We ought to be looking at sin for what it does to God. That's why he talks about in this passage, he talks about godly grief. In the original Greek language, you know what that, that phrase literally says? It literally says, and according to God, grief. Godly grief has God as its focus. Worldly grief has us as its focus. Let me put it to you this way. Here's a good way to put it. Worldly grief says, oops, I broke the law. Godly grief says, oh God, I broke your heart. There's a difference between tears that leave you where you are and tears that move you where you need to be. Jesus made a lot of strange statements. And I don't know if you ever thought about this or not, but in the Beatitudes, he makes this really strange statement. In, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, he says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me just, but th listen to the first part. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, let me ask you a question. If you saw someone on the street and they were just absolutely, they were just inconsolable and they were just uncontrollably weeping and crying, I mean, they're just bawling their eyes out. Would you walk up to that person, put your arm around them and say, you're so blessed? You say, well, no. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, here's my question. How are people who mourn blessed? Well, Jesus was talking about people who mourn over their sins. They're broken over their sins. And they're heartbroken because they have broken God's heart. Jesus said, godly grief is good grief. And if you've got the ability to grieve good, you are blessed. Because when you've got godly grief, you want to go find the one who is good and the one who can make you good. Now, that's all raising a question. You say, well, pastor, my question is this then. 
Is there a test out there? Is there some way that I can know whether or not I'm really sorry in the right way for things that I have done or what I have done? I'm really regretful for doing things wrong or having done things wrong. I'm really, really sorry in a godly way for when I have sinned, when I've hurt God, when I've hurt someone else. Yes, there is. There's one surefire test that will tell all of us whether or not we're really sorry when we've sinned, when the fault's ours, we're the one that's ruptured a relationship. And here it is. We must fully repent of our sin. We must fully repent of our sin. Now, let me just say, I'm going to state something you know is obvious. There's something desperately wrong with people. Just wrong. Let, let me tell you. The, the, these um, These terrorists, these gutless cowards who are beheading people over in, in the Middle East, in a way they're to be pitied. That makes me angry. It should make you angry. But it's to be pitied. There's something desperately wrong with people who can do those kind of things and feel no remorse, feel no guilt, who can go to sleep at night. They, they, they feel no regret. They feel no shame. And you know why they can do that? Because there are two different kinds of sorrow. One is a divine sorrow. One is a deadly sorrow. Now, here's the difference. Verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, I'm going to plant here for just a few minutes. We're going to be done. But this is so important. I don't want you to miss this. It doesn't do me any good to talk to you about repentance unless I make sure you walk out the door and you understand exactly what the Bible means by repentance. Because there are a lot of us here in this room this morning, and the reason why we don't have a relationship with God, and the reason why many of us don't have real good fellowship with God is because we really don't understand what repentance is. We think we do, but we don't. Here's an example. Repentance involves conviction. You, you, you know, you've got to realize that what you've done is wrong. You've got to realize it's a sin. However, you can be genuinely convinced, yep, I've done wrong. I'm really convicted about it. You can be convinced and you can be convicted. That's not repentance. Now, repentance involves confession. And we said one of the things you've got to do, you've got to confess your sin. However, you can confess your sin. You can acknowledge your sin. You can do it privately. You can even do it publicly. But confession alone is not repentance. Repentance in, in, in involves contrition. We've already talked about that. Yes, you should genuinely feel, feel sorry and be grieved over your sin. You ought to be sorry because you've offended someone. You ought to be sorry because you've hurt someone. You ought to be sorry that you're the one that's at fault. But if that's where you stop, that is not repentance. Say, okay, when is repentance real? You ready? Real repentance always involves change change. For example, there's an intellectual change. You probably have heard this before. You know what the word repent literally means? It means to change your mind. So let's say you're not a believer. Let's say you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never been what the Bible calls born again. You've never been saved. You may be religious. You may go to church. You, you may, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but you really don't have a relationship with God. You really don't have a relationship with Christ. When you repent, you change your mind. You change your mind about God. You change your mind about Jesus. You change your mind about sin. You change your mind about yourself. You change your mind. However, it's not just an intellectual issue because even Judas changed his mind. But repentance is not just a change of mind. Repentance is a change of heart. 
So it's not just an intellectual issue, though it is. And as we've already seen, there's an emotional change in repentance. You, you, you do feel sorry for your sin. And you don't just regret what you've done. You regret to whom you've done it. We've already said worldly grief is self-centered. Godly grief is God-centered. So you're sorry. You grieve. You're emotionally brokenhearted, not just because of what your sin has done to you, because of what of your sin has done to God. Okay? We get all that. But that's not repentance. Repentance is a spiritual change. Because here's what happens. When you change your mind and you change your heart, you change your direction. When you change your mind and you change your heart, you change your direction. You do what the military calls an about face. You do a 180. You turn away from your sin. Just like the woman that was caught in adultery. You remember the story? Woman's caught in adultery. They bring her before Jesus. Jesus doesn't, get, he doesn't try to excuse her sin. She doesn't try. I mean, she's guilty. Everybody knows she's guilty. Jesus looks at her and he says, I forgive you. I don't condemn you. But then you remember what he said? Go and sin no more. What was he saying to her? If you're really sorry, you're going to repent. If you're really sorry, you won't be back here again. If you're really sorry, you're going to turn away from that which got you put in this place to begin with. You're going to change your mind. You're going to change your heart. And you're going to change your direction. That is the spirit of repentance. It's when you come before God and you say, God, I've not made a mistake. I have sinned. And this is exactly what I did. I'm calling it what you call it. I'm going to go to the person that I've offended and tell them exactly the same thing. But oh God, I'm not just telling you I'm sorry. I'm asking you right now, give me your grace and give me your power and give me your help to turn away from this sin and help me, if at all possible, never to do it again. So now I want to close and wrap all this up by talking to two different groups of people. There's some of you listening right now to me, and you're under this great delusion, and I want to help you get out of it. You have think, you think you've done all the things on the outside that's necessary to be right with God, but you're not right with God. And the reason why you're not right with God is you've not done the one thing necessary on the inside to be right with God. You say, well, what do you mean? Maybe you grew up religious. Maybe you joined a church. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've worked in the church or maybe you work in the church. Maybe you've given money to the church through the years or you give money to the church now. But deep down in your heart, if I were to ask you this question, has there ever really been a real radical change in your life? You'd say, you know, there really hasn't. There, there really hasn't been this change. And it's always bothered me. You know why? You've never repented. Never repented. So I'm going to ask you in a moment to do something some of you have never done in your life. And this is why you think you have a relationship with God, but you don't. This is why some of you do doubt you have a relationship with God because you should doubt because you don't have one. Because you've never repented. I want to talk to you in a minute, but then I want to talk to the rest of us. You're here and you're watching and you're listening right now and you're saying, look, I do know Jesus and I do love Jesus and I want to live for Jesus. But here's your problem. You've got this little pet sin that you keep on a leash. You've got this little pet sin that you keep in a closet nobody knows about. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's your sex and dating life. Maybe it's your social life. Maybe it's your greed. Maybe it's your bitterness. Maybe it's your anger. 
Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's your impatience. And, and you don't want to give it up. For some of us, it's our pride that keeps us from going to someone. You know you've wronged somebody. And you know you ought to go and man up and step up and get up. And you need to go make that thing right. But you just can't do it because you're so full of pride. And you're sitting there and you're going, I don't understand why I don't have the joy that I ought to have in Christ. I don't understand why I don't have the, the, this overwhelming feeling of forgiveness. I don't know why I stay on this guilt trip. I'll tell you why. You refuse to repent. And if you don't repent, you'll never get off the guilt trip. So here's what I want to ask all of us to do. I thought about this this morning. It's going to be a little bit cheesy, but I want you to do something. I want, you, I want everybody right now to take, to take an imaginary mirror right now and hold it up in front of your face. So you're looking at a mirror right now. Okay, everybody look at the mirror. While you're looking in that mirror, ask yourself this question. Is there anything that I need to truly repent of in my life in order to have a 100% uninterrupted fellowship with God. Is there anything, I'm talking to myself right now, is there anything in my life that I need to truly repent of in order to have a 100% uninterrupted fellowship with God? And whatever that is, I'm going to ask you today in a moment to really, truly repent. Not try to repent, not say you're going to repent. I'm going to ask you to repent. Then there's some of you here today, you'd say, you know what? I don't even have a relationship with God. I've never truly been changed. I've never really established that relationship with God. And I want you just to be honest enough to say, I need to repent. Because remember, whenever you turn from something, you turn to something. When you turn to something, you turn from something. You cannot turn to God unless you're willing to turn from your sin. But when you turn from your sin, you turn to God. So I want to close with this. I'm asking you today, don't be like the wife I read about. And before her conversion to Christ, she endlessly nagged her husband, berated her husband, criticized her husband, put her husband down. She was hellacious to live with. Well, she started going to church. And one day she came home from church and she said, I've got some news for you. He said, what's that? She said, I have become a Christian. Well, he was excited at first. He thought, man, that's, that's great. Wonderful. But nothing changed. She kept nagging. She kept criticizing. She kept putting him down. She kept berating him. And one day he finally looked at her and he said, you know, I don't mind that you've been born again. I just wish you hadn't been born again as yourself. There's some of you in this room and some of you listening at Mill Creek. You've never been born again because you were born again as yourself. There needs to be a seismic shift that takes place in your life. And I'll tell you, when you truly repent, when you say to God, with your help and by your grace, I'm turning away from me, I'm turning away from my life, the life I've always lived, I'm turning away from this sin, I'm turning away from all sin. There will be a seismic shift in your heart and in your life. And it's not that you won't be the same, you can't be the same. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and with eyes closed. I just want you to understand today, unless you repent, Jesus said, you'll perish.